Hello, and welcome to another episode of Healing Through Pain, a podcast dedicated to the mission of walking people towards healing and health. In each new episode, we will discuss how to show up well for the responsibilities and opportunities that life sends our way. Here is your host, Stephanie West, a licensed practicing counselor in the state of Michigan, a teacher, and a professor who lives her life at the intersection of mental health and education. Thanks so much for following along. Welcome back to a new episode. What I'd like to do is spend some time not convincing you that last week's episodes matter, but putting some brackets around them so you can understand why diving into the fact that childhood trauma happens is important in some of our stories. Because there's plenty of people that would say, hey, I don't want to go to therapy and learn that my parents did A, B, and C wrong, and so now I can blame them. I I don't have that desire. And the reality is that's not what therapy's for. It's not for figuring out who did what to us or what happened to us so we can assign blame. What it does is it provides a launching point for explaining why we do some of the things we do today because of what might have happened in our history and in our context. When there's pain in our stories, we usually find ways to stymie pain and to avoid pain in the future. So when there's fear in our stories, we find faulty ways of navigating it. And so when I start talking about childhood trauma, I'm talking about pain has shown up and fear has shown up. And because those two things are running, we start to make decisions going forward that while once they may have been helpful, if I practice the same behaviors that served me as a child and now I'm an adult, you could see where there might be a breakdown in the value of some of those behaviors. So when we talk about things like coping strategies and defense mechanisms, we're talking about things that once upon a time made sense. If we had to cope with a really big situation in our life and we had to protect ourselves somehow, or we felt like we had to protect ourselves somehow, we pulled on strategies that served a purpose. And in the short term, they may have actually been quite helpful, but in the long term, not only are they not helpful, they're probably not healthful, and they're probably long-term actually quite harmful. So we have to look at what coping strategies there are, what defense mechanisms there are, and usually when we look into our stories, we find context about why once upon a time they served a purpose, and that can be really helpful in giving us permission to dismantle and unlearn some of the responses we have now because the context has changed and these are things that we've outgrown or matured past or the threat that we once perceived is not an active threat. Unfortunately, when our bodies in a young state are asked to navigate really big situations, really painful situations, really stress-inducing situations, our bodies and our brains can help wire us for protection. So they're actually actively engaging in helping us be fear-aversive and pain-aversive. Think of even at a subconscious level, if I put my hand on a hot stove, before I even register that it's hot, my body has already done what it needs to do usually to get my hand off that stove. And now the thought pattern is there that, oh, we don't put our hand on the hot stove anymore. These are automatic responses that happen not even at the conscious level. So protective features might be showing up under our awareness, so at our subconscious level. And these might be things that are really unhelpful and unproductive. And it goes across all three planes. It goes through our thinking 
thinking patterns, our thoughts. It goes through our behaviors or our volition. And it also pings in our emotions. And the reason therapy is such a neat tool is because we work in each of those planes to dismantle strategies that are no longer helpful and then to replace them with helpful strategies. Because let's go back a few episodes where all of our behaviors are geared to meet needs. So the needs are still going to be the same, but we want to meet them in a more healthy and a more helpful way. Some of the other things to be aware of with ACEs, the poor health outcomes for those with high ACE scores, it's not a guess. It's it's tried and true science. Now, correlation is not causation. Just because someone has a high ACE score doesn't mean they're going to fall into these categories. But what it does mean is that they're more likely to have poorer health outcomes. So if you have zero ACEs, your chances of smoking are one in 16. If you have one to three ACEs, your chances of smoking are one in nine. If you have four or more ACEs, your chances of smoking are one in six. So now we have a strategy that's supposed to help soothe us and calm us. Organically, if you've had more stress, you have the desire or the need for more soothing endeavors. So smoking is one of those things that people might gravitate towards. As we look at alcoholism, without ACEs, about one in 69 identifies alcoholics. Four or more ACEs, one in six. So the difference is vast. One in 69 with no trauma in their history versus one in six with four or more ACEs in their upbringing. IV drug use, one in a 480. It's a minuscule number for those with no ACEs. Four or more ACEs, one in 20. 5% of the population with four or more ACEs has the propensity for IV drug use. So it does get concerning. And then we don't even go with the behavior piece. Let's go with the physical health piece. Heart disease is often tied into unprocessed anger and unprocessed hurts. With a history of zero ACEs, about one in 14 people struggle with heart disease. With four or more ACEs, one in six. I'm no mathematician, but I think that's like a 250% increase. Astronomical. And here's one that I think should stop us in our tracks. We understand that suicide and suicidal ideation is really at high, high proportions compared to in our history. When we look at no ACEs, it's about one in 96 have suicidal ideation or attempt suicide. Four or more ACEs, one in five. One in five people, so 20% of those who have steep trauma in their childhood history suffer with suicidal ideation. And it's it's a reality that hard stuff happens in our foundational years. So as we're talking through smoking and alcoholism and IV drug use and heart disease and suicide attempts, that doesn't even come into addressing people who adopt those methods later in life because of hard stuff to soothe and to sort through things and to process through things and to numb things. So this is just statistics that relate to those who under age 18 are affected by ACEs. And it's really, really concerning because the evidence of childhood trauma shows up in many people's stories. And so what happens when we experience trauma is we adopt methods and strategies that aren't necessarily going to be helpful for us. A tragedy is that many people shut down needs altogether. They refuse to ask for help. They see themselves as the problem. And one of the things I want to use my voice for is to normalize that trauma is a breakdown in community. And if we expect to bridge the gap of what some people experience in trauma, we need to reconnect them in community. And one of the things that is really hard to observe 
observe is when kids let parents know that they're struggling and parents don't hear them. And there's reasons why parents don't hear them. There's a whole host of them. One of the core reasons parents don't hear is because of their own pain and their own fear. So my my mentor, Joe, he does a lot of relationship counseling. And one of the things he says is to love someone is to invite pain. And he's usually speaking about that in a relationship context. That applies to parenting as well. When parenting becomes a part of your story, you are literally inviting pain into your story. Parenting is like inviting a giant mirror into your life and it's going to take a spotlight and show it on every imperfection that is possible. And one of the things that matters is if you don't handle your stuff, if you don't sort through your struggles and your problems, kids will often be collateral damage in that because the cycle repeats. And so what happens when we invite people into counseling and we invite people to look at what are my strategies? What are my fear responses? How am I pain aversive? We're literally inviting them to look in a mirror and and asking them to recognize that none of us are perfect. If we look at parenting statistics, 100% of parents get it wrong at some point. Because of the fear and the pain that drives that statistic, instead of collaborating with one another or supporting one another, we engage in fear and pain rhetoric of, well, I do it this way and my way is better and I would never do it the way they did. And suddenly we have giant opinions about everything. We have the desire to compare our parenting journey, well, my kids turned out this way and I must be a better parent, but their kids turned out this way, so they must be a worse parent. And none of that deals with the fact that hard stuff is happening to the kids. If we expect kids to be well, we need parents who are well. We need parents who are willing to look in that mirror, parents who are willing to say, I'm doing things out of fear, I'm doing things to avoid pain, and it's not the best method. These are maladaptive strategies. Once upon a time, they probably served me well, but now that I'm older, I have to find new ways, healthy ways, helpful ways of navigating my hurt and my pain. I watched Encanto over the weekend. I've heard a ton of references to it, but I've especially this last week had multiple clients show up and say, Steph, you've got to watch this. It is so good for a trauma narrative. And I, I, I'm i not intending to give spoilers, but there's this place where Abuelita finally says, I did this to us. We look at that in uh, Greek literature and it's called anagnorisis, seeing things as they are. It means we are looking in the mirror and we are calling truth, truth. And we're saying, I've contributed to some of this damage. So I've, uh, if you go back to episode 23, I talk about a look inside my PTS affected brain. I know that I've got a lot of quirks and a lot of defensive strategies that I've adopted that are no longer serving a purpose and they're no longer helpful. So when I was in therapy last week, I was talking to my therapist and I said, what's going on with me right now is I'm experiencing so much sadness because I realize how hard it must have been to try to love me in my marriage because I don't have a frame of reference for what it looks like to be loved well, and I don't have a frame of reference for what it looks like to love others well. And that must have been significantly hard for him. I was wired for protection all throughout the relationship. I had fear running, I had pain running, I had pain aversion running, I had fear aversion running, and I adopted faulty strategies and someone else had to be a part of the collateral damage in my story too. That's how it happens when we don't sort through that things have happened in our lives, when we don't understand why we do what we do, then we're not identifying them as faulty and we're not feeling a need to grow past them and through them. So as we talk about parenting and as we talk about what if something's going on in your kid's life right now, that's tough 
stuff that you don't want to necessarily have to think about. It's fear and pain that's running that. Fear of letting kids down. Fear of what others think. Fear of not being perfect. The pain of letting others down. The pain of what others think. The painful reminder that we're not perfect. And I get it. It is not a fun lens to look through. But when we look at the ACEs and we look at the fact that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, working with your kids now and fixing family dysfunction now might have better health outcomes as it relates to things like smoking and alcoholism and suicidal ideation, heart disease, IV drug use. It's all so important. When we think of health and wellness, we have to understand that some of the most formative years that our kids have might be ones that if they're just trying to survive it, they pull in fear responses and pain-aversive responses that they might have to answer for all throughout their lives because once upon a time they were necessary in their stories. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Please share this content with friends and family. Feel free to connect with Stephanie at healingthroughpain21 at gmail.com. Until next time, be well.